Coming up on Golf Today, Wyndham Clark stops by to chat about win number one at the Wells Fargo, what he has overcome, what he has learned, and where he is going next. And Paul Azinger will lend his time and thoughts to the program about his PGA win 30 years ago. How fast was his heart beating while dueling with the great white shark? And between me and you, we are talking to the kid from New York. New York, Ja Rule, rapper, golfer, rules official, pizza maker, always on time on Golf Today. Golf Today. Golf Today on a Tuesday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. Golf Week magazine. Quite the eclectic guest list we have today. You're about to interview Ja Rule. There are days, Damon, when this show feels like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates when you just <laughs> simply don't know what you're going to get today is one of those days. But that's kind of like golf as well. You never really know what's around the corner. Mm. Jordan Spieth is evidence of that this week. Brings us to the news. Here's what you need to know. On this Tuesday, speaking of Jordan Speed, the PGA Tour returns to Texas and Craig Ranch, where players compete in the tournament name for an all-time Texas golf legend Byron Nelson. Coverage of the AT&T Byron Nelson begins Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And some big news yesterday surrounding the Dallas native Jordan Speed as he has withdrawn from this week's event means a lot to him, citing a left wrist injury that has him week to week. Now, Spieth took the social media yesterday and issued the following statement, part of which read, over the weekend, I had severe pain in my left wrist and had doctors confirm an injury that requires rest and limited movement. I'm focused on healing as quickly as possible and will have to evaluate my recovery week to week. Sincere thanks to the medical professionals who have supported me over the weekend. For more on speed, let's welcome in George Savarikas from TPC Craig Ranch. George, what can you tell us? Yeah, Damon, if you look at the timeline for the wrist issue that Jordan Spieth has been dealing with, was dealing with that severe pain really on Saturday is when he could tell that it may be an issue that could cause a severe limitation to his effectiveness this week at the AT&T Byron Nelson. Finally made the call on Monday that, you know what, I'm not able to go this week. Hopefully, with treatment, I'll be good to go next week. He's dealing with an issue with the tendon in his left wrist. So until Friday, it will just be rest and physical therapy. On Friday, they'll evaluate where he's at to then get a gauge of what type of work he can put in prior to the PGA Championship. In speaking with his team, they said he's going to do everything possible to get himself ready for the PGA Championship, but he has to see how that left wrist will respond. If it means that he arrives on Monday or Tuesday, next week at Oak Hill. That's something they would factor in. He's going to take until the last possible second to see how his wrist responds to treatment. And if you look historically, remember Jordan Spieth had bone chips in that left wrist a couple years back. That was from a weightlifting injury. Uh, this a little different since he's dealing with a tendon right now, but it truly is what they told me, a coin flip, a 50-50 shot. They'll be able to give it a go next week at the PGA Championship and vie for that career grand slam. George, it's always worrisome when you hear a player use the word severe when describing the discomfort of an injury. Is surgery a possibility in this case? And that's something right now where when, when they say week to week, they're going to have to see how he responds to physical therapy. I think surgery is a 
break glass in case of emergency consideration they would make down the road. The last thing you want to do is have surgery in the middle of the season, knowing that he'd be out for an extended period of time that could really put a dent in this season, if not the remainder of it. So right now, physical therapy, the first option. I think they're going to have to weigh all possibilities down the road if this is a recurring injury that keeps him out not just this week, but weeks going forward, Eamon. George Sauerigas reporting on the injury of the three-time major championship winner, Jordan Spieth, who, as George mentioned, is the next man up in pursuit of the career Grand Slam. Would happen at the PGA Championship next week. Let's take a look at the odds presented by BetMGM. You see Jordan Spieth flat-footed with a couple of past PGA Championship winners in Brooks Kepka and Colin Morikawa at 20-1. to 1. Amy. Keeping our attention on this week's PGA Tour stop, let's flash back 31 years to 1992. The AT&T Byron Nelson was rain-shortened that year. Billy Ray Brown beat Ben Crenshaw, Bruce Slitsky, and Raymond Floyd on the first hole of a sudden-death playoff. The win was Billy Ray's second on the PGA Tour. And here's a look at the past champion's career bio. He had three PGA Tour victories in all before injuries derailed Billy Ray's career. He was a 1982 NCAA Division I Championship as a freshman at the University of Houston and joined Golf Channel as an on-course reporter in 2007. And Eamon, since we are in Texas this week, it's worth noting that Billy Ray Brown was a member of the 2018 Texas Golf Hall of Fame as well. Terrific photo. So it's time now for a past champ chat. Welcome in our colleague, Billy Ray Brown. Billy Ray, the guys you beat in that playoff at the Nelson, 54 combined <laughs> PGA Tour wins. Crenshaw, Floyd, Litsky, a fellow Houston Cougar. What was your thought process going up against three pretty big names in the game? Damon, hey guys, how are you doing? First and foremost, I was the biggest underdog ever in a playoff, <laughs> I can tell you that. Only having one victory up to that standpoint. But, you know, uh, that was, that was a special time because, you know, the history of the Byron Nelson with Byron himself and also Texas native, you know, Ben Crenshaw, Bruce Litsky, and then eventual Hall of Famer Raymond Floyd. Uh, certainly, uh, that, was, that was a mark for a Texas golfer itself to win in his home state because I had had near misses in my hometown of Houston at the Houston Open a number of times where a couple runners up and a, a third there and never was able to close it out. But to win – in Dallas and, you know, in Byron's tournament as well, uh, that was a special time. And, you know, uh, you look back at all the champions that, that are on that trophy to Byron Nelson and, you know, when it has his name on it, Sir Byron uh, is special. And, and I got to tell you, uh, through the time when you win that golf tournament, you actually get to know Byron off the golf course. And uh, he taught me so much in, in as far as like, uh, you know, reference to putting golf in, you know, the correct priorities. And he had he had it down pat. Billy Ray, the, the tournament was rain-shortened that year. It was pretty horrendous weather day after right. day. You went then to a sudden-death playoff, par three. You knock it to 15 feet and make the putt to beat those guys. What were the nerves like at that moment, or were you still kind of young and just full of passion at that point and didn't actually have any nerves? Yeah, you bring up a really good point because we talked about the, uh, the rain. Uh, everybody had left the golf tournament. It took some probably three hours that the four of us basically sat in the locker room with the uh, locker room completely empty, and it was just us four waiting for the playoff. And at that point in time, you know, I had so many emotions, ups and downs, uh, what I was going to do. And obviously with three seasoned veterans, uh, 
I was just trying to leave what they were doing. They were, they were relaxed. And, you know, I tried to play it as cool as I could, but certainly it didn't matter at that point in time. I was nervous as heck, that's for sure. Any gamesmanship? Did they try to kind of lean on you, make you a little nervous while you're waiting for that playoff? You know, you think they would, but, you know, growing up, uh, Bruce Litsky, a longtime Cougar, uh, uh, so we were really good friends. I had known Raymond for a number of years because we played for the same company, Bridgestone, at the time. And obviously, Crenshaw, I was early on in my career, so I reached out to Ben quite a bit and played a lot of practice rounds with him. So it wasn't new that the three guys that I was playing with, but as far as gamesmanship, not not at all. You know, uh, only people, like I said, were there were us four and our families, basically, and, and, and television itself. Billy Ray, one of my favorite things about watching the, the AT&T Byron Nelson through the years has been seeing the winner get to spend time with Byron Nelson under the umbrella, maybe shaking Peggy's hand as well. How much time did you get to spend with one of the greatest players to ever do it? You know, when I won back in 92, Byron was still pretty mobile and, 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 and very active. So I spent a lot of one-on-one time with him, he and Peggy as well. Uh, and it was, it was amazing to be able to pick his brain. He, he was so full of knowledge about the game itself, of, and not from a ten, uh, technique standpoint in which we see today, more of the mental side of the game where, you, you know, you basically, every, everything was off field, you know. He said, you know, one of the things I learned from him, he says, throw, you know, the yardage book, that is a, that's all it is, a yardage book. It gives you a reference. I want you to go around and start trying to play golf by feel, hitting different shots all the time. You know, in his incredible run in which he did, he said that's what he did. He just basically played on feel, and he said, believe in your talent and believe in what you're doing. And you know what? It, and the way he, he came across it, it wasn't like uh, there was any terminology difference whatsoever. He was straightforward to what he said, and you took to what he said at heart. Billy Ray, a couple of years before you won the Nelson at the 1990 U.S. Open, Medina, you tied for the lead going into the final round. You shot even par, and you ended up one stroke outside of that right. epic healer when McDonald playoff. Right. Do you ever think about what might have been? You know, yes. To, only, uh, only on days that end in Y, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, I think about it. Yeah, I don't think about it much anymore since the playing days are over with. But, but what gets me is uh, the story that Hell and I had, we were very close at that time. And, uh, you know, I missed that short putt. I'd say about six feet on 18 to get into the playoff. But the most special time about that is, and I look at myself right now, I probably wasn't ready to win a major, honestly. You know, it is what it is. But for the first two nights, Friday night and Saturday night, Curtis Strange, the two-time in a row U.S. Open champion, took my wife and I, Cindy, and uh, out to dinner. And, of course, Sarah was with him also. And he went through everything that I was going to go through. This is how close we were. This is a guy that's, like I said, just won back-to-back U.S. Opens, took me to dinner Friday and Saturday night and told me every scenario that I was going to go through through that the, the, the final couple rounds. And he did not miss a beat, the ebbs and flows of what went on. And I look at that week and go, that was the biggest learning experience because I was not ready, in my opinion, to win a major. And uh, certainly to the case, I asked Kel uh, on the final round because he was you know, about six or seven groups up. And he tells his story quite often. Uh, I said, hell, any advice? You know, he was getting ready to go warm up. I was just getting to the locker room, get ready to uh, go through my routine. He was going to go warm up. So I had an hour or so. I said, hey, 
any advice in the second round? I mean, for the final round. He goes, basically a lot what Curtis said. And he left there and went, this kid has no clue what's fixing to unfold here for the next 18 holes at Medina. And it's, and it's, and he said that inspired him. He says, I'm not out of this thing just yet because we had this young kid trying to win his first major. And so th those two stories there to get back to your, to, to that original question, I learned more that week from not winning than winning the tournament itself. Billy Ray, you hit 14 of 18 greens in that final round, hit a great shot on 17. I was watching highlights this morning to set up a birdie putt. At the end of the broadcast, Jim McKay said, Billy Ray Brown, we'll be hearing that name for many years to come. Keep your head up. And then, of course, you dealt with all these unexpected injuries. Was it difficult for you to make peace with what your career might have been without those injuries? Damon, yes. Uh, you know, early on, it was really tough because when I had the injuries, I came back and had a couple surgeries and, and won a couple more times. And just to the top of your show, what you – uh, y'all were speaking with Jordan. <laughs> All I did when I was hearing about speed, what George's going through and we, you know, uh, it makes me think back. He better take care of himself right now because mine started just as that until, uh, you know, some freak injuries on the golf course, uh, hitting a tree root, hitting an old sprinkler head, uh, that damaged the wrist to really unrepair. Uh, I look back on it and, Yes, but you know what, though, Damon, it, it, you and I have known each other for a long time. The relationships that I've made in television now and working with Golf Channel and NBC Sports has, has been amazing. And certainly I don't think that I would have had the opportunity to have these lifelong friends. But as far as the playing career goes, certainly I think about it quite a bit, and especially when you hear some of your peers go, man, you, you had it taken away from you because of injuries. Man, there, there is a path that everyone's got to take, and you go down that path and just trust it. That's hard, easier said than done early on when I was done playing and started in television. It was, it was hard to swallow. But, you know, I look back at it now and go, yeah, it could have been better, but nothing could be better right now than, you know, doing what I do on a weekly basis, uh, watching the best players in the world out there with the final groups. Now, the only drawback is, I wish I knew then what I know now. You know, you don't have to be perfect to win. I think I would have won at a higher clip if I would have known then what I know now watching the best players in the world try to win a golf tournament every week. You mentioned the multiple surgeries you had with, for the wrist injuries, Billy Ray. Was there a point where you never got well enough where you could even have conceived of playing PGA Tour Champions golf at any stage? Or was the desire not even there at that point? Well... I, I will say this, and, uh, you know, I, I use Curtis' name quite a bit because we're real so close. Because once I got done playing, I went straight to work with Curtis and uh, Mike Tirico at ABC when I got done, uh, you know, Jack Graham. Everyone knows, you know, the, the long list of people that worked at ABC and Baker Finch that, you know, Curtis and I were talking one time. That last injury that I had Easter uh, weekend in Atlanta at Sugarloaf, where I was pain-free, I had just won another golf tournament, and I was hitting a drive on the on Saturday on the first hole, and the wrist gave out again. There was nothing. I was off the tape. I was off medication. Everything was fine. It just and it just it gave way, and and there was nothing left to it from then. And so I had a chance to come back after the third surgery, but 
I, I will be honest with you. You never lose the will to win, but you lose the, the will to prepare to win. And I, 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 I was spent. I was totally spent of trying to rehab. And, and by, by that time, the game was passing me by. And it goes to your point about turning 50. When you're away from the game as long as I have uh, had been, you certainly don't think you can just go ring that bell and go play against the best players in the world on the PJ Tour Champions because uh, I, I'm sorry, those guys are very competitive. I didn't have the game, probably had had the game to compete, but also didn't have the tournament game to compete. So I elected not to go uh, or, or chose not to go play uh, and just continue with my television. So, uh, and I will be honest with you, I'm not sure if I could have competed at a high level. You know, you might find lightning in a bottle every now and then, but certainly if you're not playing tournament golf week in and week out and you came out on the PGA Tour Champions, and we've seen it by a number of guys that have storied, storied careers and great and, and, and great resumes struggle to come out there. And so uh, I saw that, and I think the writing was on the wall for me. Billy Ray, we appreciate your time and candor and oh, terrific God. advice for, for Jordan Spieth if he and his team are watching. Enjoy your Tuesday. Thanks so much. Yeah, you know what? I just I just want to tell Jordan, if you're watching, Jordan, you, you have my number. Take care of that risk because one golf tournament's not worth it because I, I, I tried it and it comes back to bite you every time. Guys, thanks for all your time. Thanks, Billy Enjoy Ray. the weekend, Nelson, too. Appreciate it, pal. Great advice. All right, bye-bye. Right, From a three-time winner on the PGA Tour, Billy Ray Brown, one of our terrific Guests we have on this Tuesday, Paul Azinger, the 93 PGA champ. Wyndham Clark, the most recent winner on the PGA Tour. Paige Crawford is going to compete this week in New Jersey on the LPGA Tour. Hallie Ledbetter, influencer and host of Better Off with Hallie Ledbetter. Justin Parsons and Brady Riggs on this National Teacher Appreciation Day. And last but not least, a four-time Grammy Award nominee and New York native, Ja Rule. Like you said, Damon, it's eclectic. Coming up on Golf Today, Hallie Ledbetter is going to join us to talk about that new show on Golf Pass. Stay tuned and she'll be right here. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And welcome back to Golf Today. Hallie Ledbetter is the daughter of golf instructor legend David Ledbetter, who worked with the likes of Nick Price, Nick Faldo, Charles Howell III, Michelle Wee, Lydia Ko as well. Now, Hallie has a new show on Golf Pass, Better Off with Hallie Ledbetter, which will explore the exciting changes happening in and around the golf world today. It will feature original sketches, her take on the game we all love, and travel 
around the globe, shining a spotlight on the exciting brands, celebrities, businesses, and people that make sure the golf industry only gets better with time. Here's a sneak peek. It's Hallie Ledbetter here. You know me as a host, a reporter, a golfer, but you have never seen me like this. Smells fresh. Hallie! Jessica? Bogey. Nope. Check out Better Off with Hallie Ledbetter streaming now on Golf Pass. And Hallie Ledbetter joins us now. Hallie, great to see you. Can you explain what your new show on Golf Pass is all about? Yeah, of course, Damon. Well, it's it's a little bit difficult to keep it short, but I'll do my best. I really feel like the format lends itself to to be about a lot of different things. It's a it's an eight part show, and each show we have a sketch, a monologue, and a field piece. And the sketches are really from primarily a female perspective. It's it's all in good fun, but it might make you might make you think uh, twice about some things. The monologues are. Really, from my perspective, you know, growing up in the, the golf family that I had and as a lefty golfer and that sort of thing. And then the field pieces were really fun. We actually got to interview a lot of sort of brands that are innovating in the golf space and people that are that are change makers. So it really, you know, runs the gamut in terms of, of subjects, if you will. How did you first actually get into golf, Holly? I know it might seem obvious given the family connection, but it's not every kid who follows into the family business. So how did you find your way into this game? Yeah, honestly, even I tried so hard to not be a golfer. <laughs> I really didn't want anything to do with it. My thing was riding horses always, which my dad always jokes because he's like, you pick the one thing more expensive than golf is horseback riding. Uh, but ultimately, I got sucked in. My brothers are really good players. I have a younger brother and an older brother, and they just looked like they were having a blast with it. And I was sick of sitting around the dinner table, everybody talking about how they putted that day. And I'm like, I don't have anything to share. So ultimately, when I was about 13, 14 was when I started hitting the range, getting blisters on my hands and and kind of fell in love with it from there. But definitely at the start was was not a fan of golf. <laughs> well, Hallie, a lot of golfers are introverts. You've always struck me as an extrovert. So do you think you found your calling a bit with the sketch comedy and the things you're going to be doing on the show? Yeah, definitely, Damon. I mean, it's always been uh, my aspirations. You do something in comedy. And I'll be honest with you, when I was uh, when I was just out of college, I was like, man, maybe I should move to L.A. or move to New York City and try to pursue stand-up or something. But it was funny because as I would write, you know, little bits or sketches or whatever, they were all around golf. And there was actually a comedian named Heather McMahon, who's a, a really well-known um, stand-up comedian. And she told me, she gave me advice. She's like, write what you know. And that sort of made me think like, huh, okay, maybe – Maybe maybe I can do something that's entertaining and in comedy, but use golf sort of as a platform for that since, you know, I, I, I know it so well. And golf is just so ripe for comedic content. So, yeah, this show has, has been a dream of mine, and it's been so much fun, too, to to work with some absolutely hilarious people on it as well. I mean, we had two really, really funny, really great golfers that I grew up playing with. One, Aaliyah Clark, who played golf at UCLA, finished second in the mid-am the last two years. And then Kate Scarpetta, who played golf at Princeton and is an incredible, she's actually a TV writer. So we had them, and then we had legitimate stand-up comedians, and we would all Zoom for two to three hours every single day and just be laughing our heads up as we came up with these <laughs> hilarious premises. Well, as we all know, 
Hallie, comedy is a very subjective business. Uh, one of the episodes has an all-women's country club where a man is made to feel uncomfortable with the patronising, sexist comments. How much of the show is about trying to poke fun at those stereotypes that exist in this game? Um, honestly, I'm in most of it. <laughs> I think, you know, we were, like I mentioned, the the writer's rooms that we had, we would be sitting around it. And for sure, it's a, a lot of this stuff is exaggerated just for, uh, just for comedy's sake, but it does stem in real experiences that I myself have had or my friends have had um, and just kind of said like, hey, as a as a man, if you were in the if you were in this situation, you'd probably feel a little bit uncomfortable too. So uh, again, it's all in good fun, but just a way to you know make you say like, oh, maybe second guess some of the some of the situations uh, that we have in the game. Better off with Hallie Ledbetter streaming on Golf Pass. Hallie, great to visit with you, and best of luck with the show. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up next from Hallie to job Wool. We're going over the rules of golf, say the job rules of golf with none other than rapper and songwriter Ja Wool. You won't want to miss this interview next, baby. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Uh-oh, back on Golf Today. Ja Rule is a rapper, singer-songwriter, record producer, and actor. Throughout his career, Rule has been nominated for four Grammy Awards and two American Music Award. And outside of his love for music, Ja Rule is a big fan of golf. Did not have that on my bingo card. In fact, he was spotted out at last week's PGA Tour Champions event, the Mitsubishi Electric Classic, where he took on the rules of golf. Check it out. Can I get a rules official, please? Can I get a rules official over here? Somebody call the officials, you need a business, you need a ruling here. You need a ruling, hold on. Let me get my book out. Rob. I, you know, I'm, I'm right over here, and, and between me and you, I, I, what, what do I do? Between me and you, I'm gonna have to call this one in. Hey, uh, uh, what are we looking like over here? Rob is on the outside of the red. Make my own discretion. Okay, okay, that's what they say. They say my own, use my own discretion. Okay. Okay, Rob. What do we got? I usually do this, you know, when it's a little like that. That's how you do that. Oh, Rob, we're in bounce. You're in play. You are in play. 
and that is rule 336. When you out of bounds, make sure no one's looking and kick it back in bounds. Let's go, baby. Sounds good to me. Thank Let's you. Let's go, baby. All right. You're all good. Anybody else need some, some ruling? <laughs> That'll play. Thank you, Ja Rule. And Ja Rule joins us now from where else? The golf course. Ja, when you made New York two decades ago rocking the Yankee hat and jacket, I never expected to see you in a polo golf shirt. How did you discover the game of golf? Oh, man. Man, I love, you know, during the pandemic, man, I think a lot of people picked up the game. I, you know, I had played before then, but never really, you know, seriously. But after the pandemic, I really, really got into golf, really caught the bug and, I'm here, man. I love I love playing golf. It's, it's, this is my office for, for at least four to four hours of the day whenever I can get out on it, you know? You're going to have to explain something to us here, Ja. How does a rapper from New York end up as a fake rules official on the senior tour? I don't even know, man. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, man. I, I, think, I think the guys over the PGA Championships and, and, and Rob and all the guys at the program, man, they really are... Uh, uh, took me in and, and, and gave me a lot of great tips on golf that day. So I had a ball, man. It was great. You know, this can be used against you with the guys you're playing with now because you've admitted on camera that you use the foot wedge. Oh, hey, listen, everybody loves the, the rule 336. They, they all love that rule. <laughs> John, where have you played? What's a perfect day for you on the golf course? Oh, man, this, this type of weather right here is perfect. Like, like. Mid-70s, not too hot, not too windy. You know, this is the perfect golf day right now. But I played, you know, basically I play all over the world because I travel a lot. So I, I played recently out in Australia, and I just played uh, uh, Dorado Beach in, in, in Puerto Rico. And I, I was trying to play um, uh, recently when I was out at uh, Artie. We was we just that recently where I wanted to play. We was trying to play at um, in Italy. Italy. We was trying to play in Italy, but it was uh, it was far. It was like an hour and a half away. So, you know, but but I love that's that's really for me. That's the funnest part that I get to travel all over the world and, and try out different golf courses everywhere. So it was really really dope. Well, what's your game like, John? Break down your strengths and your weaknesses. Oh man, I'm I'm pretty good. You know, in and around the greens, they call me Chip Kelly. <laughs> that's my nickname. They call me Chip Kelly. But but I'm I, you know um. My weaknesses would, would probably be my driver. I'm not as strong with my driver as I, as I could be. I'm, I'm, I'm really good with my irons. You know, I can hit my pitching wedge like 150. So anything in and out of there is pretty, you know, I'm pretty, pretty dangerous. <laughs> Why do you think golf is so popular with music artists, Joe? You know, we talk about Nick Jonas, Willie Nelson. Pretty much everybody who's in your yeah. business seems to end up in this game. I think it's the, you know, it's, it's the relaxation of it all. You know, you get out on the greens and it's it's just, it's like zen, you know. So we're in a stressful business and, and, and this is this is the place where you can just relax. You know, good camaraderie, meet good people, enjoy good conversation, talk business, and not be stressed about too much of anything for a good four hours. So I think that's why a lot of uh, entertainers and a lot of, you know, athletes and entertainers are taking on golf. Ja, I read when you were a younger man, you got to meet Mike Tyson, Michael Jackson, and Michael Jordan, the three Mikes. What were those experiences like yeah. for you? Oh, man, all, all of them, you know, different different in every aspect of the word, but legendary nonetheless, you know, iconic nonetheless, man. So, 
man, if you ever had a chance to grace any of the Mike's presence, you're doing, you're doing good in life. <laughs> if someone had told you back then that you were going to end up as a golf nerd playing a rules official in a senior tour video, what would you have thought? I would have thought they were crazy. I, you know, when I was young, uh, my uncles used to watch golf, and I used to think they were crazy. <laughs> but now I get it. You know, I understand the game, and so it's, it's, really, it's really a relaxing time. John, golfers like to compare eras. I'm sure Hogan and Sneed and Nelson thought they had the strongest era. Jack and Arnie, later Tom Watson, Trevino, maybe Tiger, Phil. The rap game today, how does it compare to when you first broke through more than two decades ago? Man, you know, it's, it's, it's the same uh, argument. You know, what, what era was, was the best? You know, they, they say, like, the 90s and the, and the 2000s and the 80s era. You know, they like to call those the golden eras of hip-hop. But, you know, hip-hop is still so new. We're only 50 years old, so that's, like, three decades right there. So it's pretty, it's pretty much golden all throughout, I, I would have to say. But, um, you know, it's like that in any, in any genre, you know, um, whether it be music or you know, film or, or, or sports, you know, people are always going to compare who's the greatest, but it's, it's such a, it's such a hard conversation because it's, it's, it's subjective. You know, you like what you like. John, I want to ask you about some of the other interests outside of golf and music. I read when you were like an avid pizza chef, can you confirm or deny? <laughs> I, I am, man. I, I make, a, I make one great pizza man I, I make some good pizza. I, i'm at home with it you know i got my uh my 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 stone pizza oven maker thing and you know I, I go crazy with it some 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 nights me and the kids we, we have some fun with it <laughs> love it well golf in the morning and a little pizza in the evening and hanging out with the kids john we appreciate the time and, and best of luck make some birdies out there today oh man thank you man for your mouth to god's ears let's go baby hit them straight <laughs> Ja Rule, just a rapper looking for birdies at New York Country Club, enjoying a spring day, beautiful one, in Rockland County, always on time. on this Tuesday. In case you didn't know, this is Teacher Appreciation Week, so I'll give a shout out to all the hardworking men and women who devote their lives to teaching our students, but we'd also like to take this time to give a shout out to some of the great teachers, Eamon, in the game of golf. Well, Justin Parsons is a golf instructor at Sea Island Performance Golf Center down in Georgia. He's originally from Kalinchi in Northern Ireland, also served as a director of instruction at the Butch Harmon School of Golf in Dubai where he was mentored by Butch and his son, Claude Harmon III. Let's take a look at Justin Parsons' bio. He began teaching at the age of 19, and it was in 2009 that he took up residency in Dubai, now in Georgia, where he teaches players such as Harris English, Brian Harmon, Patton Kizar, and Justin Parsons joins us now from Sea Island. Justin, thanks for your time. You also work with Will Gordon, another player who's on that list of names we just saw. They're all very different players in their own way. Is there a commonality to how you approach teaching guys like that, or is everyone unique in his own respect? I think there have to be, you know, the, hello guys, and it's, it's great to see you. There, there, there has to be some commonalities in some of the structure and some of the systems that you use, but, you know, ultimately all these guys are, are so, so different in the way that they can move their bodies, in the way that they learn, 
in the where you know where they grew up, you know how they learned to play golf, all of the previous instruction they had, you know all of those different things. They'll have a have an impact in, in what sort of student they're going to be. And we just got to work out you know the best way to work with each person and try and get the get the most out of each person. And that's something I'm glad to say I still find fascinating and a, a big part of my job. Justin, I read in your bio that you focus on the mental, the physical and the technical in your teaching. How much more prominent is the mental side of the game than it was, say, 20 years ago when you started? Well, I think we all agree now that if, if you're not thinking properly, and, you know, there's somebody very close to you there, Damon, that sometimes doesn't think properly over the golf ball, but if you're not thinking properly over the golf ball, it's very difficult to get your body to do the right thing um, whenever you're trying then to hit the golf shot. So, you know, we, we have to clear the cobwebs and we have to make sure that people are giving their bodies um, the right messages before we can even expect them to swing the club correctly. So all of those things are very, very much interlinked. You know, the physical side, if, if you know, I try and avoid ever asking a player to do something that he or she couldn't do physically, because if I'm doing that, I'm really just creating a moot point and a, and a, and a stumbling block or, a, or an obstacle I'm going to have to get over somewhere later. So you're going to have to potentially swing around physical limitations. You're going to have to try and make sure you're bringing the most out of those mental capabilities. And um, and again, you're, you're also going to have to try and arm yourself with, with the correct amount of swing and instructional technical information so that you can, you know, you can continue to move them forward. And, you know, that has changed over the years with, with equipment and with how fast and how, uh, and how strong players have gotten. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just good to, to try and stay on the front foot with everything. Justin, several lifetimes ago in one of your very first jobs, you used to give free range balls to Rory McIlroy at a range in Northern Ireland. Did you see the potential in Rory McIlroy when he was a kid? Yeah, I mean, I, I played, I was luck, lucky enough to play a bit of golf with Jerry when I was growing up and uh, I was working at Blackwood Golf Centre back in, in Bangor in Northern Ireland and in the winters, Jerry would bring Rory back down after he'd done his homework and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to give them you know, a few free buckets of golf balls and I'd stand behind, you know, I remember one night in particular, you know, standing behind the bay, the, the rain was coming in, it was it was late, winter's, winter's night and I, I was watching Rory hit the little five wood or seven wood that he had and one after the other into the floodlights, these balls were just like his perfect little signature draw. And I remember saying to, remember saying to Jerry, you know, he's gotten pretty good here. And he was he was 12 years old, I think, then, and, and starting to get to about a scratch handicap. And the flow and the, the, the rhythm and the balance of the whole thing, you know, really hasn't changed that much. So uh, it's been really cool watching him grow into the player and the, and the man that he is. And uh, it's nice still catching up with him at tournaments and, and seeing how he is. Justin, players are always pushing to get better. Rory, Harris English, who you work with. I imagine teachers have to evolve as well. How much do you seek knowledge outside of just golf by seeking the knowledge of business leaders or coaches in other realms? Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been lucky both in, in Dubai, and I, was, I lived in Dubai from 2004, and, you know, we, we had access to a tremendous amount of, of people from different backgrounds, you know, cricket backgrounds. You know, I spent a bit of time with you know, some film stars out there and some different people. I think you learn a great deal from people who are truly successful in their fields. And, you know, recently I've, I've had a look at, you know, delved into the world of neuroscience a little bit, which is way above my pay grade from a, an IQ perspective. But starting to understand a little bit about the way the human brain works, I think is really, really valuable for what we do. And, you know, I spent a, a long part of, I guess, you know, 2010 to 2020 looking at anatomy and how the, how the body's working and how the body's moving. And, Really, then you can kind of just strip away and make sure that you're you're giving the students the right sort of information and making the the, the learning experience hopefully a fun one uh, and one where they're where they're improving at a at a rapid rate.
Justin, during the Masters, I asked a couple of teachers over dinner who they thought was the best teacher on tour who doesn't get enough credit. Both of them said you, and I know you're not, you're too modest to actually pick up on that, but who gets your vote for the teacher who's out there that you see who doesn't get the prominence you think they deserve? Um, I think, you know, it's funny. We, we, I think we do very well as teachers. Um, you know, we don't actually ever have to hit the shots. Um, you know, I think I think Boyd Summerhays does an unbelievably good job with with Tony um, and a lot of the, the players he works with. I think Mark Blackburn more recently has just been, you know, every time every Sunday afternoon I seem to be sending Mark a text and telling him congratulations. So, you know, those are two guys that that I certainly admire. Um, you know, there's a bunch of people out there. It, it feels quite quite good out there on tour, and I want to go out. We're we're kind of we're all in the same corner fighting battles, and we you know we we help one another out. You know, Dana Dalquist. Uh, a friend of mine asks, he's a very, very smart guy when it comes to the golf swing, and I ask him questions when I'm a bit stumped, and yeah, and hopefully I can I can help some of the others out as well. So, you know, we're all in the same boat trying to make players better, and, uh, you know, hopefully we're, uh, we're, we're doing our part. Justin, I remember speaking to you in the days before Harris English got that victory at the Century Tournament of Champions, and the days before you said you were trying to get him to walk like a panther, to chew his gum with purpose, and, and all these things kind of outside of the golf swing. And then to see it all come together in that big victory, it had been a while for Harris. What is that satisfaction level like for a coach? I think it's, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's validation, you know, for me when, when, a, when a player like that who's, who's had such a rough patch comes back to it, you know, you kind of think, well, you know, I had to have something to do with that. You know, it wasn't... Uh, you know, it wasn't just overnight and we worked very very hard and we, we stayed on top of of a lot of things so I think I think validation and pride you know seeing Harris who's going to be a father this year and who's, who's building a beautiful home here on Sea Island and you know thinking that you might have helped him uh, you know along the way as, as, as he's helped me along the way uh, you know again I think it's a it's a team with his caddy as well Eric Larson you know we we talk most days and we're looking forward to getting up to, to Rochester to the PGA Championship so you know, it's a great journey and a great thrill when it when it goes well. And but I will tell you, the the ones that the ones that aren't playing well give you more more heartache and headache than the ones that are playing well. When the one, you know, when you get guys playing well, it's great because everything's falling into place. But your your heart and your head are still in the ones that are struggling a little bit. And uh, you know, those are the guys that you need to make more time for and, and try and make sure you're doing the right things by them because it's easy to get kind of caught up in the uh, in the in the success of the of that and leave the other ones behind. It's a perilous world because of that for, for guys in your business, Justin. One day your guy's winning, the next day he's firing you. Is it tough in your job to separate the personal from the business aspect of that kind of relationship? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think from from being mentored by Butch and, and Claude and, and the Harmon family, I mean, I think I was in a, in a really good position because they'd had so many of those instances. And Butch always said to me, you know, you're going to have a personal relationship with players and you're going to have a professional relationship with players. And what you want to try to do is try to understand that, you know, you may well have a lengthy personal relationship with a player like I have with Seamus Power, for example. And I, I helped Seamus for uh, about a year and I, I, I don't think I did any harm, but he didn't do the things we've seen him do recently. But, you know, Seamus and I will still meet in the range and talk about the Irish rugby team and, you know, grab a bite to eat together or a beer at an airport together and, and, having those personal relationships for me is very, very important. And, you know, when you're in a situation when you've got to try and be a, a professional for them, you've got to do your best and, um, and give it your best shot and, and do what you think is right and, and open your mouth when you need to and give them, like Butch always said, a, a pat in the back when they need to or a kick in the backside when they need to. And, 
Um, you've got to be okay with the fact that uh, you know the, the the those professional gaps within the personal relationship could be they're, they're finite and they can last a year or they could last six months. Justin, these are millionaire athletes in some cases with big egos, perhaps Brahma bulls. How difficult is it sometimes to continue to raise your level when sometimes the players are challenging you as much as you are challenging them? You know, again, I think that goes into your kind of your interpersonal skills, like recognizing where they are in their lives, um, knowing that, you know, when, when people get married, things change a little bit. When people get divorced, things get changed a little bit. When, when people have children, so, you know, judging judging them as human beings, uh, you know, I think that, that comes into the kind of the more interpersonal world of what we do. And, um, you know, the, the off the golf course skills or the, the interpersonal skills, I think at you know, with, with what we do, you know, if we're talking about, you know, myself and Mark Blackburn Boydell, I think those interpersonal skills, you know, can really, really help you along the way because you're, you're, they see you as a human being and a coach at the same time, you know, and you're judging them as human beings, although, you know, I marvel at Paris English going bogey free on the weekend at Bay Hill. He's doing things that I could only dream of doing. But uh, at the same time, I know the human. I know what a good, good person he is. And uh, then we can deal with that, with that human being. Well, Justin, you got to get back out on the uh, lesson T at Sea Island. Hope it's a beautiful day down in Georgia. Thanks for the time. We'll speak to you again soon. Great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, guys. We're back on golf today as we continue our Teacher Appreciation Week. This one is Brady Riggs. He's a senior instructor at the Four Seasons Hawalalai on the Big Island in Hawaii and at the PGA West Golf Academy in California. He's a longtime Top 100 teacher for Golf Magazine here with his daughter Maddie, also a teaching professional now. And here's a quick look at Brady Riggs' bio, inducted into the Southern California PGA Teaching Hall of Fame in 2017, has been a tour instructor for seven years, but over 30 years in this business, and he's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, as I'm sure he's about to explain. Brady, thanks for joining us. You have a, an impressive track record of taking junior talent to the elite level of this game, which I've always thought is kind of the litmus test of a great teacher. You had Danielle Kang from her early teens through when she won back-to-back -back women's amateurs, Brandon Hagee and David Lipsky to the PGA Tour. How rare is it to see talent like that walk onto your range, and how do you manage to get it elevated when there are invariably parents around who think they know as much as you do? Mm. That's a great question. I think um, you never know, you know, when somebody comes onto this onto the driving range, how good they're going to be. Sometimes there's a Daniel Kang or an Anthony Kim, and you're like, well, that kid's a no doubter. But then a kid like David Lipsky, who I worked with for for many years, uh, you know, I never thought he was going to be at that level. He was always getting better, and he was always, you know, a solid player. But he kept improving. I think that's the one thing that you see with with all players is they continue to improve as they get older. They don't hit uh, hit that plateau and stay there. They keep reaching and, and improving all aspects of their game. And that's what it takes if you're going to get to the highest levels in the game, for sure. Brady, golf, like tennis, individual sports, there's a lot of losing involved, mostly losing. And when you're dealing with kids, that can be very difficult to process and handle. How do you handle that as a coach? You know, I think you said it perfectly, Damon, that, you know, golf, we lose more than any other sport. So... I think it's important to keep kids playing other sports. I can't think of anything more important than having a kid be able to do something other than golf because golf can be can beat you up. You know, if you compete over a long period of time, there may be months or if not years that go by that you don't win. 
So in their developmental years, it's great if they're playing other sports. I was fortunate with my daughter played soccer. Both of my daughters played soccer and softball and golf. Um, Brandon Hagee, for example, played basketball and football. Playing those other sports keeps golf from being kind of overemphasized. I, I think that's really important. And, you know, players are then able to kind of deal with the difficulties of losing but you have to set goals along the way that are attainable so that even though they're maybe not winning the golf tournament, they're hitting those marks that they have to hit. they got to check the boxes along the way. I've heard you say several times, Brady, that you're an advocate for teachers who can help students help themselves. What do you mean by that? Well, I think with the technology nowadays, you know, everybody thinks the answers are going to be in the little orange box or whatever piece of technology that they're using. But you know, those are extremely expensive and you can't take them out on the golf course. So if you can't understand your own misses, can't read your own ball flight and know why the ball is doing what it's doing in the air, you're going to have a difficult time on the golf course making changes on the fly. And if you can't make changes on the fly, and I know Eamon's great at this, but if you can't do that, you're going to struggle scoring and you won't be able to, you know, play 18 holes well. You know, you can always tell a player that's, that's getting it that may not start around well but they make the proper adjustments during the round and they actually play better as the round continues. And that's really what you want to see. Uh, my well, I want my students to be able to do so that they don't need me all the time. I mean, the best compliment I can get is if I don't see somebody for, you know, three, six, nine months and they let me know, Hey, I'm playing great. And it's just, let me know when you need me because then I know I've done my job. Brady, how much do you have to adjust your own coaching style dependent on the player? Maybe the child is a left brain or a right brain learner how much do you adjust you know teaching by feel versus teaching by a technical way that's a great question damon you know i think people have to lean into who they are you know if you're a technical person and you like to see video or you like to see the numbers you want to have things explained to you in detail then you've got to lean into that because that's what makes you comfortable if you're somebody who doesn't like any of that and you want to stay as far away from video and technology as possible then you want to just do it by feel, then that's who you should be. And I think it's important to try and help your student discover that in themselves, because if they're trying to be somebody that they're not, they're not going to learn as quickly and they're not going to have the, the impact, you know, that they want to have in terms of making changes in their game, because it isn't really who they are. I think my daughter was talking to me about that the other day. She said, you have to teach your players to lean into who they are as a person. And I think that's great advice for all people out there learning the game. Brady, earlier you mentioned in passing Anthony Kim. You spent a lot of time around him in his early years in this game, certainly before he became this mythic figure that we know now in the PGA Tour. Just how much potential did he have that was never realized? And do you have a favorite AK story from back then? Hmm. You know, AK was easily the most talented player I've ever seen, and that was from him being seven, eight years old at the driving range. I mean, Anthony did things that you still, I still can't believe. He'd walk up right next to the tent and hit flop shots over me and over the tent onto the other side when he was, you know, 13, 14 years old. I mean, the kid was, he was a freak. He was as special as everybody says he is. I mean, Anthony could have been whatever he wanted to be in the game. You know, he just, I don't think his heart was in it in terms of, you know, making that kind of long-term commitment to golf. But I've never seen a more talented player than AK. For sure. And I, I've got a great story about AK, and I think it's true for all junior golfers and everyone that gets to be, you know, kind of elite in the game of golf. And that is, you have to believe in yourself. You have to have that self-belief. And I remember talking to AK the summer before he went to Oklahoma 
And I said, hey, Anthony, when are you heading to Oklahoma for school? And he said to me, the franchise will be arriving in Norman in late August. <laughs> and that kind of gives you an idea about how AK felt about himself. That's a great story, Brady. You know, some parents, and AK had a complicated relationship at time with his parents. Some parents dropped the kid off at the range and let the teacher or coach do the job. Other parents are standing behind the range, arms folded, paying close attention. What role should the parents play in the journey for the young player? It's, it's a really good question, Damon. I, I tell parents they should ask their kids one question after a round of golf that's competitive, and that is, where do you want to eat? Because a kid doesn't want to talk about the round if they didn't play well. You're doing them no favors by, you know, basically giving them the third degree after they play, if you're trying to figure out why they didn't score well. You know, the parents should be there to support their kids. They should tell their kids how much they love watching them play. And they should be there to kind of take them back and forth and take them to, in Southern California, to in and out afterwards to, to just get away from the game. And I think the parents that do that end up having a healthy relationship with their kids over the long haul. And what's interesting is you can see parents that are way too involved and they actually can have a player be successful, but then they don't have a good relationship with the kid. And that seems ridiculous to me. I mean, the, the idea should be that golf is healthy. It's something that both of you guys are enjoying. And, and unfortunately, you know, too many parents think they know more than they do. And the more that the teachers can step in and be that sort of barrier between the two and make sure that it stays healthy, I think the better. Brady, have you ever had a student that completely stumped you no matter what you tried to do with him, you kept running into a brick wall? Um, let me think. Yes, I have. Um, usually it's a mental breakdown somewhere along the way, Eamon. Um, I, I know you may not be familiar with that, but Eamon, I haven't given up on you yet. Like, you can fire me as many times as you want, and I'm still going to come back for more. Brady refers to himself as the Billy Martin of my golf instructors because he's been recycled in and out all the time, but he hasn't given up on me. I've given up on me, but he hasn't. Looking forward to the next chapter between Eamon and Brady. Brady, thanks so much, pal. Me too. <laughs> you got it, David. Good talking to you, buddy. Great having Brady Riggs with us here on this Tuesday from a PGA professional to PGA champ. When Golf Today returns, another major champ is hopping on the show for a past champ chat. Paul Azinger, Zinger, who captured that lone major 30 years ago. Zinger, up next. The freshest winner on the PGA Tour is coming up. Wyndham Clark will be here to talk about overcoming an elite field and his own doubts to win the Wells Fargo Championship at the weekend. And we take a stroll down memory lane with this guy, Paul Azinger, 30 years after his win at the PGA Championship. Golf Today is entering the home stretch. Come along for the ride. Golf Today. And folks, we're leading you into second round coverage of the PGA Works Collegiate Championship at the bottom of the hour. This is the 36th playing of the championship and it's first time at Shoal Creek. The tournament aims to elevate the game at historically black colleges and universities by providing student athletes the opportunity to compete on a championship stage. This is Golf Today. Damon Hack alongside 
Eamon Lynch's National Teacher Appreciation Week. We've spoken to Justin Parsons and Brady Riggs. I found both conversations enlightening. They really are. I, I spent quite a bit of time with both of them, more so to their detriment <laughs> than to mine. But two fantastic teachers, and both of them spend a lot of time working with junior players. And I thought it was really interesting, Brady, pointing out that you only know that the talent is really there when the benchmarks start creeping up. That, you know, a fully formed great player does not walk onto anyone's mm. range. You can still see talent early. We heard Justin Parsons talking about standing behind Rory McIlroy when he's 12 years old on a winter's night in Northern Ireland yeah. and seeing the talent that was there. And Danielle Kang's a perfect example with Brady Riggs. She went to Brady when she was 13 or 14 years old and Brady was her coach through back-to-back -back US Women's Amateurs when she qualified for the US Women's Open. It takes a special kind of teacher who actually can mould that talent and bring it to that elite level in the game. There are fewer teachers out there than you'd believe who can actually do that. I love what Brady Riggs had to say about the parenting aspect of a child's journey in golf or tennis or pick your sport and how it's more important to, after the game is over to just say, where do you want to go eat? Or I love to watch you play. That's his way of telling you not to be a tennis parent. I, trust me, I was literally, I was taking notes. And if you want me to be honest, I was actually sending a text to my wife to say, hey, this is what we need to do when we drop the boys off and they play their tennis matches. It's more about, hey, I love to watch you play. Uh, you know, where do you want to go eat? And some of these things we've heard, but it's nice to be, you know, reinforced about a lot of those important messages because there's a lot of pressure, especially in the individual sports as opposed to the five-on-five -five basketball game. you got to admit, it's fairly unconscionable, though, when Brady said that there may be a mental game issue with me that needs to be <laughs> addressed. I mean, that's, it's so implausible. I love the Billy Martin you know, comparison that you'll be having him as the coach maybe for the sixth or seventh time going forward. Well, the countdown is also on for the 2023 PGA Championship, which heads to Oak Hill Country Club, Rochester, New York. Next week, we've got you covered with live from beginning Monday, 5 p.m., Eastern time. Here's how players in Texas are preparing this week. I've been uh, struggling a little bit lately, ball striking. So I've, I just told myself uh, we're going to play. I, I mean, I like this course because I won Q school here. Uh, but when you aren't hitting it good, it doesn't matter what course you're on. So I'm just trying to find something to uh, prepare me well for next week. It's been quite the grind the last like three months. <laughs> Very honest, I'd, I'd like to have a chance to win on Sunday. Um, you know whether that materialized or not, uh, we'll see. But um, you know I, I haven't been where I'd like to be. Uh, I had a you know a good week at the match play and okay Masters, but uh, since then it's not been quite what I'd like. And so I'm looking to see a little bit of form uh, this week and adding a start here to uh, get the game in shape. How have you used weeks before the major in the, in the past to kind of springboard you when, you when you've played the week prior? Yeah, for me, it's just about uh, competing and just, uh, you know, seeing your game under tournament conditions and getting tournament reps in. Um, you know, I don't think they'll, I've never played Oak Hill, so there won't be shots I'm hitting this week that will, uh, you know, I won't be working on shots for Oak Hill. Um, obviously, this is a course where you'll, you'll lean on driver a lot, and I'm sure at Oak Hill you'll be doing the same thing. So, yeah, I just kind of want to see some good things out of my game and uh, hopefully come Sunday be in, the, be in the mix. You're here to compete and win. You know, I've definitely been in that situation before where, you know, like the two Opens I played, uh, you know, I was just sort of like I was so far removed from playing the actual event just thinking about what it was like moving forward to the next week sort of got in the way and sort of just look at it as like if I'm going to be here, I want to be here to compete. 
and sort of carry over any good experience into that the next week instead of constantly be moving forward. And uh, I mean, like anything, you have experience and and understand what works and what doesn't, and make mistakes and adapt and be ready to move forward. And you know, that's what we're here to do this week. You know who knows how to win a PGA championship? Huh? Paul Azinger. Let's flash back to 1993. Inverness. Zinger defeated Greg Norman on the second hole of a sudden death playoff to secure his lone major title. Birdied four of his last seven holes in regulation. Shot 68. There's the putt. Norman missed in the playoff. And Paul Azinger was a major championship winner. Time now for a past champ chat. Zinger. Great to spend time with you. I spent my morning watching highlights from 93. You told Jim Nance that your heart was beating so fast that you could see your eyeballs flashing. What do you remember? I remember that. I remember I could feel my pulse in my eyeballs, but I had gotten really dehydrated. I started cramping in my right calf, and uh, I was in a little bit of trouble. As early as the 71st hole, I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble because I'm starting to cramp up, and then went into the playoff, and thankfully it ended quickly. <laughs> Paul, well, heading into that final run, you were in a six-way tie for second place, one stroke behind Greg Norman. That seems like a guaranteed gunfight that's going to happen right there. What was your game plan heading into the final round? You know, I had a real relaxed pairing with Bob Estes, and um, I was cocky all week about the way I was playing, but I was really nervous about, you know, trying to win a major title and all that. And uh, I just think that my mindset was to be sensible, put it in play off the first tee, and I was just so wrapped up in the task at hand, which was one shot at a time, and it worked for me. I had a little bit of a panic as late as about the 12th hole on Sunday, thinking maybe this isn't gonna happen because I wasn't making putts. And I made about a 20-footer there on the 12th hole, and the, you know, fortunately for me, you know, some of those putts slipped out for Greg, but it was a dogfight. There was a lot of great players up there. And uh, it meant the world to me to win that and, you know, be a major champion. I had gotten that little bit of a monkey that I was the best player not to win one, and that ended quickly. Zinger, what was the best shot you hit that week? Uh, let's see. Probably the tee shot on 17 with a three-wood. I can visually remember what a hard shot it was for me. And um, I just saw the pump house at my driving range at my home course, and I just thought if I shoot it at the pump house, I'd never miss it more than five yards either way. And I committed to that in my mind and striped it down the middle with a little draw and then hit nine iron in there about four feet and made the putt. So there was three consecutive shots there on the 71st hole. You know, that's the reason I won it. Singer, it wasn't long after that major championship that you were diagnosed with lymphoma. Stories at the time said that you might have felt something in your shoulder the moment you picked up that Wanamaker trophy. What do you remember? Well, I had had shoulder trouble off and on since 91 in my right shoulder. And in 93, Dr. Frank Job wanted to biopsy my shoulder. And I didn't want to, so he opted to do a bone scan in June. And uh, by the time... Really, we were going our separate ways, but he looked at the bone scan and didn't like it. And he actually called me the Friday night of the PGA Championship and said he would like to do a biopsy the Tuesday after the tournament. So I knew that there was a problem while I was playing. And uh, that really kind of added to my sense of urgency, like, I got to get this done. I figured I was going to have rotator cuff surgery or something like that. I just was blindsided by the idea that it was cancer. 
Um, you know, it, it changed everything. It changed my life. It cut my playing career short, uh, no question about it. Although I did win again in Hawaii, and I, I did get to play another Ryder Cup and President's Cup, it just changed everything for me. And uh, But I'm just grateful I got it done. You know, if I don't win the PGA Championship, I'll never be a Ryder Cup captain. And uh, all of us that love the Ryder Cup knew what winning the PGA meant to us. It meant the world to all of us that won it. And uh, I'm just thankful it happened. Did you, in a way, feel cheated out of your best years, Paul? Because there was that seven-year gap between winning the PGA Championship and the Sony Open, during which you happily recovered from the cancer. But did you feel as though you'd been shortchanged in terms of what you could have achieved? Um, as a player, I might have done you know, added to my record and all that. I, I believe that's a possibility for sure. But I also feel like everything about life is purposeful. You know, we were created with a purpose in my belief. And um, every stage of my life, I, I can almost go in 10-year increments. I was born in 60, so I can go in 10-year increments quite easily. And it seems like everything is purposeful, you know, in certain phases of life, you know, trying to make a living for my family, trying to get on tour and make a living playing golf, you know, that was my purpose for a long time. But as I get older, now you can't play anymore. Um, I talk for a living a little bit, which is kind of nice. And, you know, I have a different purpose in my life. And I think uh, I have a more uh, charitable kind of a mindset and want to be in service to others as I get older. You, you look at the transformation of Jack Nicklaus and his purpose-driven life. And uh, at the end of his life now, Jack has raised more money to help children. I'm so happy for him. Tigers made the shift. We all hit a fork in the road at some point, um, but we all have a purpose. And, and I just think the challenges are in, in every phase of life that you do the best you can every day. And that's what, that's what we do as players. You know, we're not superhuman, um, but life goes on. You know, the playing golf for a living is, it looks like the hardest thing in the world to me right now. Well, you're a major champ. You're a broadcaster, our lead analyst on NBC. You're also a victorious Ryder Cup captain. Are you comfortable with the process that we're seeing between the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, kind of the same names being handed, the walkie-talkie, the Strickers, and the Loves, and the Furics, and the Zacks? You did a pretty good job in a way, I have to say. Well, I do believe that there needs to be a cohesive kind of a group, you know, um, I always felt like the captain should pick two future captains to be his assistants. I never envisioned that guys would captain and win and then come on and stay on and stay on. Now, I did use two past captains uh, with Dave Stockton and Raymond Floyd, but I just wanted to share my experience with those guys and their families and Olin Brown. Uh, but now it's different. They're either, you know, either guys are saying no or they're asking the same players. That's just the way that seems. It does seem clickish. But I think a certain amount of that is very important. Um, we've sort of copied kind of the way that Europe has done it in the past. And I think it's working for the U.S. side, especially in the Ryder Cup. Now, the President's Cup, there might be a lot of no's. You know, guys just don't feel like doing that. And maybe they want to, uh, uh, you know, just they keep they say no and they keep picking the same guy. So that's what that looks like. If that's true or not, I don't know. But it, it's one or the other. There's some sentiment out there, Paul, that Zach Johnson ought to pick the 12 best guys possible and available to go to Rome, whether or not that includes some players who currently play on the live golf circuit. Do you believe that is likely to happen, that Zach will pick a live player, and should it happen? Well, I've given this a little bit of thought. Uh, I feel like, 
you know, they're all members of the PJ of America, the live players, unless they've been stripped of that. So by rule, they're eligible. I suppose you could pick them, but the good news is there are only three rounds in the Ryder Cup, so that would be comfortable for them, I think, and uh, that's my one jab. Um, but I don't know if Zach would want to do that. You know, what have they proven? How, how can they prove that they're hot enough and red hot enough to compete in the Ryder Cup? You can base it on past performance. Finishing second and third and fourth in the Masters is nice, but it's not winning it. And um, so I, I don't know if it's going to be a hard decision for Zach Johnson or not to skip all those guys on live. Um, but I do believe they're eligible. And, hey, it would be interesting if he did pick one. Well, Zinger, it looks like you got some fishing to do. I hope the grouper and the Mai Mai are biting. And thanks for the time. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, Wyndham Clark has had 48 hours to let his first PGA Tour win sink in. We're going to ask if it's everything he's dreamed of for a check-in with the Tour's latest breakout star when we come back. Back on Golf Today, in case you missed it, Sunday, Wyndham Clark earned his first PGA Tour title in his 134th start comes the sixth player to make the Wells Fargo Championship his maiden tour title as the eighth first-time winner on tour this season. What came with that victory was $3.6 million, a spot in next week's PGA Championship and the Open Championship at Royal Liverpool, an exemption on the PGA Tour through the 2025 season, and a spot in next year's Century Tournament of Champions, the Players' Championship and the Masters. And Wyndham Clark joins us now. Wyndham, thanks for your time. Congratulations on the win. I was struck by something you said in your comments after the victory, where you said it was quite recently, earlier this season, in fact, that you'd said to your team you didn't want to have any more conversations about whether or not you're going to win. You doubted whether or not it was on the cards for you. That would strike a lot of people as a very strange thing, given how solidly you performed on Sunday and how many people expected you to win repeatedly out here. Yeah, well, with having a bunch of... Um a bunch of heartaches um, throughout my five years on the PGA Tour. It started, you know, it started to weigh on me, and I started to think maybe I won't ever win. Um, it always seemed like something would happen, either a plug lie under a lip or, um, you know, someone shoots eight or nine under on me on the final round or whatever it is. And, and I just started to think, you know, we would talk about it, and, and I'm like, well, let's just stop talking about it. We We haven't won. I'm sick of talking about it, and that was something that I was obsessing over, and um, so I'm glad that I finally got the monkey off my back and got my first win. What have the last 48 hours been like for you? Phone calls, <clears throat> text messages, et cetera. Uh, yeah. I mean, as far as that, it, I have 1200 unread text messages, um, countless amounts of Instagram messages and Twitter and phone calls. And so, you know, I've been calling people closest to me and then, you know, reaching out to everyone else. Um, you know, it's, it's, pretty amazing. I feel really loved and blessed to have so many people that care about me. And, um, you know, it's been a pretty surreal last 48 hours. You've been so much more consistent this season in your results. When the, the first two cuts of the season were missed, but none since then and seven top 20 finishes. It had been a little bit more erratic over the previous few years. What changed with you? Well, you know, I made a co or sorry, coach, I made a uh, equipment change last year um, in December to Titleist and I gained a, a, a big amount of consistency with my irons and off the tee. 
And, you know, last year I had a pretty solid year. Um, and just as I kind of got more comfortable with the equipment and then uh, made a huge jump to work on my mental game, um, I just think those two things together combined to um, kind of give me this consistency and and just breed this confidence in myself that I know I can play each week and have good finishes and, and win out on the PJ Tour. Wyndham, last week you mentioned a couple of books that you've read along the way to help you in this journey of the energy <clears throat> bus and the obstacle is the way. How did you find those books? Did someone give them to you? Did you seek them out? Uh, yeah, I started working with a sports psycholo psychologist kind of last fall at the end of the year. And she told me, she's like, you're, you're going to have homework every week. Um, you're going to be reading a lot. You're going to be doing a lot of meditation. And I said, all right, I'm all in. I'm going to give, I gave her six months. And I said, you know, for six months, I'm going to be all in. And if I feel like there's no improvement um, in both my game and how I feel and the, the anxiety and nerves out there, then I was going to go separate ways. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I went all in because um, it's, it's been life-changing and I feel, I feel so much better out there on the golf course, more comfortable, more confident. And, you know, those books uh, were just one of many things that have helped me kind of change my mindset and my self-talk and, and belief in myself. What do you think and hope this does for you going forward, Wyndham? Does it remove the doubt or does it just give you the belief that you can process your way through that doubt when it matters on Sunday afternoon? Um, you know, I think there's probably always going to be some doubt. Um, that's just, I think, the nature of, of our game. But it definitely gives me the confidence that I know I can win on the PGA Tour. Um, and I feel like I've had this huge monkey on my back of not being able to get it done. And so now when I don't win in a tournament, it's uh, I feel like it won't be as uh, it won't he heavily weigh on me as much as it did prior to this. So, you know, winning just, I think, breeds more confidence and belief in myself and thinking that, hey, I can do this again. Um, so, yeah. Wyndham, you've overcome a lot. You lost your mom 10 years ago to breast cancer. The 29-year-old Wyndham Clark could give advice to the 19-year-old 10 years ago. What would you tell him? Um, you know, it's... I would probably just really... I, I, yeah, I tell myself to look at the big picture, and I feel like early on in my career and then, you know, in college, I was so focused on... Um, the now and the in the past in a negative way. Obviously, you want to stay in the present and be focused on the now with golf and a lot of things. But I was so wrapped up in what's going on to me now and all the bad stuff, and I wasn't playing the golf that I wanted to play, and didn't see the big picture that I'm improving every week or I'm getting better or um, I'm recovering from losing my mom or things like that. And, um, yeah, so I would just say look at the big picture and, and be patient with the process and enjoy it. Well, Wyndham, you've given us one of the great moments of the season. Congratulations. We'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. As we go to break, more images of Wyndham Clark's victory over the weekend at the Wells Fargo Championship. Welcome to the PGA Tour Winner's Circle, Wyndham Clark. on golf today time now for the 19th hole qualifying has officially begun for the 123rd u.s open championship next month at los angeles country club's north course 
process begins with 18-hole local events conducted at 109 sites in 44 states and Canada. Those players who advance will join a group of exempt players in final qualifying, which will be conducted over 36 holes at 13 sites between May 16th and June 5th. And on May 2nd, Carson Heron, the 20-year-old son of four-time PGA Tour winner Tim Heron, shot a 100 par 70 at the University of New Mexico Championship course in Albuquerque to advance through local qualifying. If Carson makes it all the way to LACC, the Herons would become the first family with four generations of US Open competitors since Carson's great-grandfather, grandfather and father all played in the National Open. Remarkable, a little, little lumpy, we'll call it. Well, speaking of players who are better than we are, Eamon, qualifying for the 2023 US Women's Open has officially begun. That's a nine-year-old. Bella Samos hit the first shot. Let's see what the swing looks like. Yep, better than we are. Yeah, by some margin. <laughs> no question about it. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've talked to a lot of interesting people, including Wyndham Clark, the most recent winner on the PGA Tour. How, how good was it to talk to somebody who's actually found a way through the mental game hurdles that exist? You know, we can't all be like Bella, and, and that childlike enthusiasm for this game doesn't last far into the pro ranks. People tend to hit speed bumps and, and potholes out there, and it's very easy to buckle under, especially with, under the weight of expectation, the constant yeah. scrutiny and criticism that these players get. So for him to have actually come through all of that and be so open in talking about it, I think it's just a great story. Yeah, I don't think the doubt ever completely gets removed. You learn to live with the doubt. Even, even the greatest of all time have to deal with that. Yeah, you take your wins wherever they come. No doubt about it. This was a lot of fun. Enjoy the golf from Birmingham, Alabama.